0: Chapter 1, Section 1 of About Orchids, A Chat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. About Orchids, A Chat by Frederick Boyle. The Preface and Section 1 of Chapter 1. Preface. The purport of this book is shown in the letter following which I addressed to the editor of the Daily News some months ago. I thank you for reminding your readers, by reference to my humble work, that the delight of growing orchids can be enjoyed by persons of very modest fortune. To spread that knowledge is my contribution to philanthropy, and I make bold to say that it ranks as high as some which are commended from pulpits and platforms, for your leader-writer is inexact, though complimentary, in assuming that any special genius— enables me to cultivate orchids without more expense than other greenhouse plants entail or even without a gardener i am happy to know that scores of worthy gentlemen ladies too not more gifted than their neighbours in any sense find no greater difficulty if the pleasure of one of these be due to any writings of mine i have wrought some good in my generation with the same hope i have collected those writings dispersed and buried more or less in periodicals the articles in this volume are collected, with permission which I gratefully acknowledge, from The Standard, Saturday Review, St. James's Gazette, National Review, and Longman's Magazine. With some pride I discover, on reading them again, that hardly a statement needs correction, for they contain many statements, and some were published years ago. But in this, as in other law, a student still gathers facts. The essays have been brought up to date by editions in especial that, upon hybridizing, a theme which has not interested the great public hitherto, simply because the great public knows nothing about it. There is not, in fact, so far as I am aware, any general record of the amazing and delightful achievements which have been made therein of late years. It does not fall within my province to frame such a record, but at least any person who reads this unscientific account, not daunted by the title, will understand the fascination of the study. These essays profess to be no more than chat of a literary man about orchids. They contain a multitude of facts, told in some detail where such attention seems necessary, which can only be found elsewhere in baldest outline, if found at all. Everything that relates to orchids has a charm for me, and I have learnt to hold it as an article of faith that pursuits which interest one member of the cultured public will interest all if displayed clearly and pleasantly in a form to catch attention at the outset. Savants and professionals have kept the delights of orchidology to themselves as yet. They smother them in scientific treatises, or commit them to dry-earth burial in gardening books. Very few outsiders suspect that any amusement could be found therein. Orchids are environed by mystery, pierced now and again by a brief announcement that something with an incredible name has been sold for a fabulous number of guineas, which, passing glimpse into an unknown world, makes it more legendary than before. It is high time such noxious superstitions were dispersed. Surely, I think, this volume will do the good work, if the public will read it. The illustrations are reduced from those delightful drawings by Mr. Moon, admired throughout the world in the pages of Reichenbach here. The license to use them is one of many favors for which I am indebted to the proprietors of that stately work. I do not give detailed instructions for culture. No one could be more firmly convinced that a treatise on that subject is needed, for no one assuredly has learned, by more varied and disastrous experience, to see the omissions of the textbooks. They are written for the initiated, though designed for the amateur. Naturally it is so. A man who has been brought up to business can hardly resume the utter ignorance of the neophyte unconsciously he will take a certain degree of knowledge for granted and he will neglect to enforce those elementary principles which are most important of all nor is the writer of a gardening book accustomed as a rule to marshal his facts in due order to keep proportion to assure himself that his directions will be exactly understood by those who know nothing the brief hints in reichenbach here are admirable but one does not cheerfully refer to an authority in folio. M. Veitch's Manual of Orchidaceous Plants is a model of lucidity and a mine of information. Repeated editions of Monsieur B. S. Williams' Orchid Grower's Manual have proved its merit, and upon the whole I have no hesitation in declaring that this is the most useful work which has come under my notice, but they are all adapted for those who have passed the elementary stage. Thus if I have introduced few remarks on culture it is not because I think them needless. The reason may be frankly confessed. I am not sure that my time would be duly paid. If this little book should reach a second edition, I will resume once more the ignorance that was mine eight years ago, and, as a fellow-novice, tell the unskilled amateur how to grow orchids. Frederick Boyle, North Lodge, Addiscombe, 1893 About Orchids Chapter 1 My Gardening Section 1 the contents of my bungalow gave material for some legends which perhaps are not yet universally forgotten i have added few curiosities to the list since that work was published my days of travel seem to be over but in quitting that happiest way of life not willingly i have had the luck to find another occupation not less interesting and better suited to grey hairs and stiffened limbs this volume deals with the appurtenances of my bungalow as one may say the orchid houses, but a man who has almost forgotten what little knowledge he gathered in youth about English plants, does not readily turn to that higher branch of horticulture. More ignorant even than others, he will cherish all the superstitions and illusions which environ the orchid family. Enlightenment is a slow process, and he will make many experiences before perceiving his true bent. How I came to grow orchids will be told in this first article. The ground at my disposal is a quarter of an acre. From that tiny area deduct the space occupied by my house, and it will be seen that myriads of good people dwelling in the suburbs, whose garden, to put it courteously, is not sung by poets, have as much land as I. The aspect is due north, a grave disadvantage. Upon that side, from the house-wall to the fence, I have forty-five feet, on the east fifty feet, on the south sixty feet. On the west, a mere gruel. Almost every one who works out these figures will laugh, and the remainder sneer. Here's a garden to write about. That area might do for a tennis-court, or for a general meeting of Mr. Frederick Harrison's persuasion. You might kennel a pack of hounds there, or beat a carpet, or assemble those members of the cultured class who admire Mr. Gladstone, but grow flowers, roses, to cut by the basketful, fruit to make jam for a jam-eating household the year round, mushrooms, tomatoes, water-lilies, orchids. Those Indian jugglers who bring a mango-tree to perfection on your veranda in twenty minutes might be able to do it, but not a consistent Christian. Nevertheless, I affirm that I have done all these things, and I shall even venture to make other demands upon the public credulity. When I first surveyed my garden sixteen years ago, A big cupressus stood before the front door, in a vast round bed, one half of which would yield no flowers at all, and the other half only spindlings. This was encircled by a carriage-drive. A close row of limes, supported by more cupressus, overhung the palings all round. A dense little shrubbery hid the back door. A weeping ash, already tall and handsome, stood to eastward. Curiously green and snug was the scene under these conditions rather like a forest glade, but if the space available be considered, and allowance be made for the shadow of all those trees, any Tyro can calculate the room left for grass and flowers, and the miserable appearance of both. Beyond that dense little shrubbery the soil was occupied with potatoes mostly, and a big enclosure for hens. First I dug up the fine cupressus. They told me such a big tree could not possibly move, but it did and it now fills an out-of-the-way place as usefully as ornamentally. I suppressed the carriage drive, making a straight path, broad enough for pedestrians only, and cut down a number of the trees. The blessed sunlight recognised my garden once more. Then I rooted out the shrubbery, did away with the fowl-house, using its materials to build two little sheds against the back fence, dug up the potato garden, made tabula rasa, in fact, dismissed my labourers and considered. I meant to be my own gardener, but already, sixteen years ago, I had a dislike of stooping. To kneel was almost as wearisome, therefore I adopted the system of raised beds, common enough. Returning home, however, after a year's absence, I found my oak posts decaying, unseasoned, doubtless, when put in. To prevent trouble of this sort in future, I substituted drain-pipes set on end, the first of those ideas which have won commendation from great authorities, Drain-pipes do not encourage insects. Filled with earth, each bears a showy plant, lobelia, pyrethrum, saxifrage, or what not, with the utmost neatness, making a border, and they last eternally. But there was still much stooping, of course, whilst I became more impatient of it. One day a remedy flashed through my mind, that happy thought which became the essence or principle of my gardening, and makes this account thereof worth attention, perhaps. Why not raise to a comfortable level all parts of the area over which I had need to bend? Though no horticulturist, perhaps, ever had such a thought before, expense was the sole objection visible. Called away just then for another long absence, I gave orders that no dust should leave the house, and found a monstrous heap on my return. The road contractors supplied sweepings at a shilling a load, beginning at the outskirts of my property. I raised a mound three feet high and three feet broad, replanted the shrubs on the back edge, and left a handsome border for flowers. So well this succeeded, so admirably every plant throve in that compost, naturally drained and lifted to the sunlight, that I enlarged my views. The soil is gravel, peculiarly bad for roses, and at no distant day my garden was a swamp. Not unchronicled had we room to dwell on such matters. The bit of lawn looked decent only at midsummer. I first tackled the rose question. The bushes and standards, such as they were, faced south, of course, that is, behind the house. A line of fruit trees there began to shade them grievously. Experts assured me that if I raised a bank against these, of such a height as I proposed, they would surely die. I paid no attention to the experts, nor did my fruit trees. The mound raised is in fact a crescent on the inner edge Thirty feet broad, seventy feet between the horns, Square at the back, behind the fruit-trees. A walk runs there between it and the fence, And in the narrow space on either hand I grow such herbs as one cannot easily buy, Chervil, chives, tarragon. Also I have beds of celeriac, And cold frames which yield a few cucumbers in the summer When emptied of plants. Not one inch of ground is lost in my garden. The roses occupy this crescent, after sinking to its utmost now the bank stands two feet six inches above the gravel path at that elevation they defied the shadow for years and for the most part they will continue to do so as long as i feel any interest in their well-being but there is a space the least important fortunately where the shade growing year by year has got the mastery that space i have surrendered frankly covering it over with the charming saxifrage s hypnoides through which, in spring, push bluebells, primroses, and miscellaneous bulbs, while the exquisite green carpet frames pots of scarlet geranium and such bright flowers, movable at will. That saxifrage, indeed, is one of my happiest devices. Finding that grass would not thrive upon the steep bank of my mounds, I dotted them over with tufts of it, which have spread, until at this time they are clothed in vivid green the year round, and white as an untouched snowdrift in spring. Thus also the foot-wide paths of my rose-beds are edged, and a neater or a lovelier border could not be imagined. With such a tiny space of ground the choice of roses is very important. Hybrids take up too much room for general service. One must have a few for colour, but the mass should be teas, noisettes, and above all bengals. This day, the second week in October, I can pick fifty roses, and I expect to do so every morning till the end of the month in a sunny autumn. They will be mostly Bengals, but there are two exquisite varieties sold by Monsieur Paul I forget which of them, nearly as free-flowering. These are Camouan and Mad J. Messimi. They have a tint unlike any other rose, they grow strongly for their class, and the bloom is singularly graceful the tiny but vexatious lawn was next attacked i stripped off the turf planted drain-pipes along the gravel walk filled in with road sweepings to the level of their tops and relayed the turf it is now a little picture of a lawn each drain-pipe was planted with a cutting of ivy which now form a beautiful evergreen roll beside the path thus as you walk in my garden everywhere the ground is more or less above its natural level raised so high here and there that you cannot look over the plants which crown the summit. Any gardener, at least, will understand how luxuriantly everything grows and flowers under such conditions. Enthusiastic visitors declare that I have scenery and picturesque effects, and delightful surprises in my quarter-acre of ground. Certainly I have flowers almost enough, and fruit, and perfect seclusion also. Though there are houses all round within a few yards, You catch but a glimpse of them at certain points while the trees are still clothed. Those mounds are all the secret. End of chapter one, section one.